Welcome to the sixth edition of our podcast series, St. Anthony's Looks at the World. My name is Roger Goodman. I'm the Warden of St. Anthony's, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce you in a moment to Professor the Right Honourable Sir John Redwood and Dr. Zachary Carabell, two of our most distinguished alumni. But first, I would like to use the opportunity to give you a brief update on the college. While the pandemic has dominated all of our lives these past months and is likely to do so for many more to come, it has not got in the way of our core activities of teaching, research and administration, even if for three groups within the college the experience of the past months has been more unusual than most. Those are the students who stayed in college, the students who didn't stay in college and the staff who have been on furlough. Dissertations, theses and books have continued to be written. Some colleagues indeed claim to have been more productive than ever. High quality area and development studies research has continued to be pursued, even if remotely. The college has continued to review its practices and the governing body passed several important resolutions in response to the Black Lives Matter movement at its last meeting. The renovation of the Hilda Best building has continued throughout the term and is on target to be completed by the end of the calendar year. Governing body has approved the re-landscaping work around the Hilda Best to be undertaken as soon as the building refurbishment is completed, which means that the whole project should be finished by this time next year. Governing body was able to approve these works due to the extraordinary generosity of the college's alumni and community of friends, who have already, with further fundraising initiatives still in progress, collectively donated £6.7 million towards the total project cost of just under £10 million. This has been a huge vote of confidence at a time when perhaps the college needed it more than ever, for which we will forever be appreciative. As the pandemic does not allow us to meet the worldwide Antonian community in person, we have increased our online activities as we consider it crucial to keep our alumni involved with the college. I'm therefore delighted that we're now able to issue this podcast in which Dr. Zachary Carabell interviews Professor Sir John Redwood. Sir John Redwood was a history student in the early 1970s. He was chief policy advisor to Margaret Thatcher in the mid-1980s before being elected to Parliament for Wokingham in 1987. Formerly Secretary of State for Wales and Prime Minister John Major's cabinet, he also served in the shadow cabinets of William Hague and Michael Howard. John Redwood was knighted in 2019. Outside of politics, he's also a business person and co-founded in 2007 Evercore Pan Asset Capital Management Limited, a financial management company which was subsequently sold to Charles Stanley, of which he is currently chief global strategist. Alongside his political career and business interests, John is also a distinguished fellow at All Souls College. His research focuses on the role of central banks in the credit crunch and its aftermath. He's examining whether you can claim any democracy has an independent central bank. Dr. Zachary Carabell did an MPhil in Middle Eastern Studies in the late 1980s, after which he received a PhD at Harvard. Dr. Carabell is an author and columnist, the founder of the Progress Network at New America, and president of River Twice Research and River Twice Capital. Previously, he was head of global strategies at Investnet a publicly traded financial services firm. In addition, he ran the River Twice Fund from 2011 to 2013, an alternative fund that focused on sustainability. He's written widely on history, economics and international relations. His most recent book was The Leading Indicators, a short history of the numbers that rule our world. And his next book, 
Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power will be published by Penguin in early 2021. As a commentator, Zachary is a contributing editor for Wired and for Politico and the host of the podcast, What Could Go Right? He's also a commentator on CNBC, Fox Business and MSNBC. If you'd like to be informed about their activities, both John Redwood and Zachary Carabell have a mailing list to which you can subscribe on their respective websites. John Redwood's diary, allloneword.com and Zachary Carabell, allloneword.com. Thank you to John Redwood and Zachary Carabell for doing this podcast for the college. I hope you will enjoy listening to them. I'm delighted to have this conversation with Sir John Redwood at this incredibly consequential time in human history. Obviously, none of us know uh, whether this is one of these turning points of history that will fail to turn or whether or not this is going to be one of those turning points that truly determines the arc of the future. And uh, no one's better to talk about that than Sir John Redwood, who's been through a series of turning points, certainly in domestic UK politics and also in the implications of the world. So let's start this off with kind of a big picture question, which is, some people feel like this is going to, the, the age of COVID is going to change everything and others feel like it's simply going to accelerate lots of different things that were already evident, but might've taken longer to reach full germination. What's your, what's your general view of that? I mean, is this an accelerant or is this going to be a sharp break? This accelerates two important revolutions which were underway before we'd heard of COVID-19. I think it's best to see the, the world of economic and, uh, economics and politics in relation to the, the top-down Green Revolution, particularly led by the European countries, but also pursued globally through international treaties, and the bottom-up digital revolution, the, the popular revolution where um, a group of large companies, both in America and in China, have caught the public mood and have recognized that the public wishes to learn, communicate, be entertained, and be formed in different ways, and has come up with astonishing technology, which is now moving on to transform a wide range of business models, destroying some and promoting others. The government's response to COVID-19 in most parts of the world uh, was to try and control and reduce the spread of the virus by the most extraordinary interventions in economies ever seen, closing down large swathes of economic activity and limiting the ways in which necessary parts of economic activity uh, could be continued. And this has played into the hands of the digital technology advocates, uh, because the, when people were isolated at home, as they were in many countries, uh, they looked to online ordering and online delivery systems, which continued to get their requirements. And they looked to downloading online entertainment because they could no longer go to live theater cinemas or live music events. Uh, and they acquainted themselves with a whole range of digital ways of undertaking transactions, paying bills, if they hadn't already done so. So we've seen a huge acceleration in the market share and activity of the digital world. And we've seen uh, uh, groups of people who weren't very keen on the digital world or who thought it was too complicated for them uh, be forced into using it and now often finding it quite acceptable. So I think a lot of the market gains achieved 
uh, during the lockdown period will be pocketed by the digital revolution, which will sweep on and it's sweeping on anyway into more advanced robotics and artificial intelligence and um, much more cloud computing, much more computer power, this generation of mobile telephony, uh, empowering people with internet information, internet, internet communications and settlement systems. There is then the, the top-down green revolution, uh, where some in the green movement think that COVID-19 pointed the way because it meant uh, a cessation of most international jet travel, massive reduction in, in most travel on highways and also for public transport networks for trains. And it was a kind of experiment as to how much of that transport you could do without uh, and whether we come out of it as the Greens hope it will be possible to hold on to what they see as some of the things from that experience in terms of air quality and reduced congestion. And there will still be an intensive pressures from leading governments through the international treaty system to try and get people generally to move on from petrol and diesel cars, electric cars, to move on from so much reliance on car to more reliance on um, public transport options, walking, cycling, when the public transport options are feasible again. Uh, and there will be a, a big drive to get people to amend the ways that they heat their homes and fuel their cookers and so forth uh, as they wish to transfer people from gas or other carbon solutions onto electric solutions, which they trust will be powered by renewables. So I think that's, that's going to be the, uh, the big theme still, but of course then a, a third set of issues which emerge out of the huge shock COVID-19 has administered to world economies, correction, the, the policy to deal with COVID-19 administered to world economies, and how long it is going to take uh, to get more parts of life back to normal, how many jobs will be lost uh, in the process, and what it's going to do to the relationships between citizen and the state, given the huge increased powers that the, the government temporarily took, and given the huge financial interventions which we are now seeing from both central banks and governments. So I wonder on that, on the central bank and governments, uh, you know, I, I sit in New York City, you're across the pond, but in, in all cases around the world, whether it's the European Central Bank, whether it's the Bank of England, whether it's the Federal Reserve and, and various financial authorities throughout Asia, have essentially uh, engaged in a, in a hypercharged version of Keynesianism, whereby central banks are, and, and governments fiscally are, supplanting the real world economy at a time when the real world economy either froze or was severely impaired by the measures taken to attempt to contain the spread of, of COVID. So what's your view on that? Is, this a, is there no going back from this moment of sort of breaking with whatever fiscal sense of, of boundaries about spending, about debt, um, about how much central banks could actually be the the, the, the backstop and the savior of, of an economy, or is this going to be seen as one of these uh, atypical anomalous emergency moments like during a war when traditional rules of how markets, free markets and government ought to interact are broken, um, but, but as soon as the crisis passes, there will be a return to something 
resembling past orthodoxy? I think there's wisdom in Keynes and wisdom in monetarism, and, and I think both um, combine to say to governments and central banks, they did need to take extraordinary action to offset the hugely deflationary force unleashed by the lockdown closures. And I think representatives of both those schools of thought would probably also agree with me in saying that you can afford it and you need to do it if it's a one-off for a limited time period. Uh, you have to substitute for the absence of uh, effective demand uh, through the, the closures and the job losses, um, the cash that will create some activity uh, and enable people to continue to buy their food and to pay their, pay their bills, those who are otherwise to lose their jobs and to enable companies uh, to keep enough of their staff uh, on the payroll and available for work as soon as normality is resumed. So as long as it's a short, extraordinary period when the law prevents you working and prevents you earning, uh, it seems reasonable, and I think most people would agree, that a combination of state fiscal action and central bank monetary action was needed to try and carry more of those people, more of those jobs, more of those businesses to get out to the other side of relaxation when normal work can resume. But I think it has also um, redefined the relationship between uh, many governments and many central banks. Now, I have always been something of a lone voice saying, I don't believe there is such a thing as an independent central bank. I think central banks are set up by the sovereign in the country concerned. Um, they continue to operate as long as the sovereign uh, is pleased by them. And when the sovereign, whether it be a parliament or a tyrant or whatever, uh, is not pleased with them, then the, the legal and political process will ensure uh, that there is a change of management at the central bank, or there, there is a change of theory at the central bank, or, or there's a change of laws and rules which impacts the central bank. And it's quite possible to, to look at the last 20 or 30 years uh, when people keenest on this idea of an independent central bank to see even when the theory was in its heyday, uh, there were clear disruptions to the idea that a central bank was genuinely independent and there was always intervention by the political authorities when they thought they needed it. But what we're now witnessing, surely everybody must agree, uh, is a period of joint working between central banks and fiscal authorities. Uh, the Federal Reserve Board um, has led the way. I think the Federal Reserve Board did save markets from financial crash um, in the third week of March when they threw everything at it and when they said there was no limit to the amount of balance sheet expansion they might undertake. It was a dramatic moment. We never seen anything like it before. And they were suddenly called in infinity fit uh, because if you read their statements, they were saying um, we can expand our balance sheet by one trillion or two trillion or three trillion or however many trillions it takes because we, the Fed, are aware that something huge has happened. We are aware that millions of people in America can't earn a living. We are aware that there will be a big collapse in turnover and out on a scale we've never seen since war, and that therefore we, the Fed, have to do something about it. And they then were clearly talking to the executive and to the Congress, uh, and the Congress and the executive were really persuaded that something dramatic needed happening, and we saw a huge fiscal package put into place shortly afterwards. And the two clearly work together. 
um, how can you afford the fiscal package or in the short term you afford the fiscal package, massive borrowings, how do you ensure you can borrow at a very low interest rate or zero? Well, you can ensure that if your central bank uh, is saying that it will keep the bond market uh, very liquid and it will buy any excess bonds it needs to buy in order to keep those interest rates very low. So the Fed showed the way. Uh, we then saw uh, expanded quantitative easing programs from the European Central Bank. We saw the UK announce new quantitative easing programs. And we saw the Bank of Japan, which has been running quantitative easing programs for many years, uh, continue with its policy of being able to borrow for 10 years at zero interest and to uh, enable that their government to finance a further fiscal boosting package uh, at effectively zero borrowing cost. So you're very close working now between central banks and governments, both energized by the need to do something dramatic to offset this massive deficionary force, uh, which was called lockdown. Although it's interesting, um, and, and as you know well, I mean, the Fed has also acted as a a backstop for other central banks, right? It's, it's, it's intra-bank lending has ex been much more extensive, the, the various lending windows that it's opened. So it's, it, it has acted mostly because the, the dollar remains the de facto global currency. It's acted as a kind of backstop for that global system. But it's also true that it has ultimately done very little of what it said it would do because it hasn't been entirely necessary within the financial system to do so. It's, the sort of the promise that it would be a backstop and, and potentially buy bonds and buy stocks. It's been enough to kind of bolster the markets. I wonder if you have some thoughts about the, just speculating how long that can go on, right? I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the United States. It's certainly been true in the UK and the EU about what many people perceive to be the disconnect between how financial markets are doing, which is quite decently in the face of uh, a, a real-world economic system that, if not having imploded, certainly had the most sharp contraction since the 1930s. And uh, uh, do, do you have some thoughts about whether or not that is a sign of, of irrational detachment, or is it simply a, a product of, of the, the central bank backstop, and, and, and how long can that last, really? I think it is the result of the uh, enormous backstop um, placed there by the Fed and other central banks. And it was a necessary one because if on top of the physical crisis, the physical prohibition, various types of work and production, you'd have financial crash as the businesses that were struggling then went under, uh, it would have got so much worse. And so I think the Fed and others rightly decided that they had to avoid um, a financial crash with money drying up to companies that couldn't undertake their normal turnover, which they've done very well. I mean, it is right that the Fed gone well beyond their normal national government-related remit. And it's very important they did, as you say, the world's major reserve currency. We were surprisingly very short of dollars, even though uh, in the early days of the crisis, the Fed was creating quite a lot of dollars. So the Fed obligingly made large numbers of dollars available under swaps to make sure that international banks, particularly in the emerging market area, had access to the dollars they needed so they could be liquid. And we saw the joint working between the um, executive and the um, central bank very visibly, because of course the Fed 
previously had not been allowed to buy up company debt, they bought up government debt. And so they went into joint venture with the, with the Treasury and formed joint venture operations with <coughs> Treasury share capital put in to give it a, a balance sheet as a, as a joint venture so that the Fed could directly intervene in the borrowings of companies as well as government. And that has also been very successful. And we've seen a, a narrowing of spreads, a reduction in the extra cost of borrowing for companies compared with the government at a time of very low interest rates. So these were very important experiments in order to make sure that the corporate sector could still access cash on decent terms to see through a very difficult period. Now you're right that there's a, another issue and people will not be very happy to own shares and bonds after very well because of uh, Fed and other central bank acting. Uh, there are big job losses and income losses for people. So it is very important that the successful work so far, keeping the markets liquid and making money available to companies, now translates into a proper physical recovery of the economy and translates into more of those jobs which have been in furlough or have been uh, remunerated by companies uh, without the work to underwrite it, uh, now become real jobs again, so that the authorities can say, yes, our intervention um, did put quite a lot of money into financial markets, but it had a direct result on your job and your shop and your trading activity, which is what we were trying to do. Yeah, no, I think that's an incredibly important point that, that, that people uh, understand, one, that a financial collapse laden on top of an economic crisis and a health crisis would have been potentially too much for any system to bear. But two, that it doesn't stop with maintaining a, a viable financial system and, and extends to also making sure that there's a viable real world economy on the other side of this crisis and, and certainly you know, people in, in positions such as yourself are going to be looked to for that. And there's certainly going to be an expectation of that in every country, right? A, a reasonable expectation of that. Let's, uh, let's end with another sort of big picture question, which is there are a lot of people still debating about whether or not um, COVID is the end of the era of globalization. Um, on the flip side, one could argue this is actually the first simultaneously experienced global crisis in real time. I mean, World War II extended to a lot of the world, but it didn't affect everybody simultaneously in the same way. Whereas COVID is right now more or less shaping both the public policies and, and, and public life of three quarters of the globe, if not more. Um, I mean, one, you know, do you feel like this is a, uh, an interruption of a phase? Or will it accelerate, again, the, the, the various things? And certainly from your perspective within the UK, uh, Brexit coming in the midst of this, right? Part of the promise of Brexit was that the UK, by no longer being as intertwined uh, without optionality within the EU would also be able to create more dynamic relationships, economic and trade with the United States, with Asia, with other countries. And a lot of that's certainly been interrupted for the time being. And the US-UK one is obviously going to be interrupted just by the upcoming US election. But where do you see all that playing out? And you know, how does this affect the kind of post-Brexit plans to, to knit those economic bonds at a time when nations seem to be retreating? I think um, the commercial banks 
who, who are still a bit on trial after the banking crash have an opportunity. It's very important they respond to it and complete that transition we're talking about in the previous exchange. They now need to demonstrate that the money supplied to markets and has been does find its way into real businesses and into people's pockets and purses so that they can carry on their normal lives with less disruption. Does this mean the end of globalization? I don't think it means the end of globalization, but I think it's a serious knock to globalization. And I think what we're going to see uh, is um, a, a rather longer set of definitions of what national interest and national resilience looks like in many countries. We've seen some of this in Trump's America, but I think we're now going to see it in uh, European and Asian countries as well. Um, the way in which it was very difficult if you depended on world trade to access all protective clothing you wanted, um, the arguments over how much access you'll have to medicines, vaccines in certain circumstances uh, will highlight the need uh, for those involved in public policy on health uh, and in national health systems in particular to be worried about future ordering patterns and will probably be wanting to be less dependent on international suppliers. Uh, I think it will open up issues about um, any country that relies too much on foreign imports for essentials, whether it be energy or certain types of um, protection and weaponry. And most obviously, we see a big global row now initiated by Presidents Trump and Xi uh, over what kind of a network you need to have, who is allowed to provide equipment and services to your network when national security and privacy of data uh, matter a lot, uh, particularly to Western countries who feel a bit nervous. So I think superimposed on the, um, the hit to globalization from COVID-19 comes the equally important uh, deterioration in the approach of the West as a whole, led by Trump's America um, with China. Uh, and the president has drawn the world's attention to what he sees as a set of practices by the Chinese and the Chinese are now entering a new aggressive phase where their actions towards Hong Kong, uh, their actions towards minority communities uh, in mainland China uh, and some of their actions uh, commercially uh, over intellectual property uh, are worrying a lot of people and are leading to a much tougher response uh, by Western countries generally. Uh, to the current position of China. So I think this is an added complication. So you've got COVID-19 saying to governments, uh, maybe you need to have more domestic production, even if it could be a bit dearer, maybe you need to have more stocks, maybe you need to be careful which vendors you have in various supply chain sensitive items. Uh, you have on top of that the security issues with cyber warfare being conducted apparently by states unnamed uh, against big Western installations, making governments naturally nervous about who they have inside their networks. I don't think Brexit um, is as important economic issue. I think it's a very important political issue, which has been gripping importance to the United Kingdom. Uh, it's about who governs and who makes the decisions. Uh, I think uh, what we're going to see uh, is the United Kingdom is quite capable of trading uh, outside the single market and the remain group in, in the referendum 
felt that leaving the market and customs union, which was always the idea of Brexit, would, would be unhelpful. The people on the Brexit side of the argument felt that leaving the single market and customs union would give us some opportunities. And the UK is currently setting out its uh, freer trade vision of how it wishes to behave as a full independent member of the World Trade Organization. And it's setting out its own tariff schedule for January the 1st onwards when we leave the single market customs union. We've already left the European Union uh, with fewer tariffs and lower tariffs because we think that is in our interest, especially as we tend to be more importer than exporter. Well, I'm sure there is an infinite amount of questions we could cover, but a finite amount of time, which is, of course, the human condition writ large. But it's been wonderful to spend these minutes and time with you to discuss these issues. And uh, it will be, of course, fascinating for all of us to see whether the immense drama of the present is a substantial break with the past or whether we look back on this as uh, one of these hugely consequential moments that simply crystallized and accelerated what was already in play. And living in the present, we don't have the virtue of 2020 hindsight in the year 2020, but we will be able to look back at this at some point, I suppose, with a greater degree of both equanimity and perspective. But thank you for adding your equanimity and perspective to this discussion. Well, thank you for very well-informed comment and questions. Yes, I think this is a big set of events. I think it will be much studied in the years ahead. None of us can be quite sure how it's going to come through. Uh, but I do think concentrating on those huge revolutions that were in place already is part of the explanation. And so I'm going to be following the digital trail and watching the Green Revolution interest. <laughs>